brother. You've learned well. You're expert at Wu-Tang. <laughs> you learn. You have to suffer a lot. Otherwise, you'd never have mastered Chin King and the Wu-Tang sword skills. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. Let's start the show. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. Jordan Peterson is a University of Toronto professor. And it seems like the mainstream media does not know what to do with this free-thinking, critical-thinking genius of a man uh, who who as of late has been uh, really, really trending on YouTube and the uh, lecture circuit on the universities. Um, He's a clinical psychologist, a professor, as I said, at the University of Toronto. And uh, he's able to really verbalize and put into words what most people are feeling and thinking today. You know, as you know, a lot of people, they, they can't quite put their finger on it. They feel that something is wrong. They sense that something is wrong. But Dr. Peterson really nails it and really is able to put into words exactly what a lot of people that are that are actually intelligent and able to rationalize and employ um, independent, rational thinking and thought. He's able to verbalize exactly what their feelings are. We really need to listen uh, to Dr. Peterson and examine his position on today's issues because Jordan Peterson is warning us all of the dangers of our current university educational system, the mainstream media, and the the approaching speech thought control mechanisms which uh, run our day-to-day lives. Dr. Peterson has been trending, as I said, on YouTube and university lecture circuits all over the place. He's This guy's really... Um, a lot of people, he's really changing a lot of people's lives for the better. Um, and he's cleaning the cobwebs out of uh, a lot of people's brains. Uh, tremendous, tremendous speaker, tremendous intellectual, this man. Um, you'll notice that in each interview that he partakes in, every time he's getting interviewed, the person conducting the interview is uh, constantly trying to play word games with him and trick him and plant the seed here and move a chess piece there, but Jordan Peterson just literally, literally takes them apart. And, uh, you know, just a few minutes into the interview, for the most part, he'll have them stumbling and bumbling over their own words. You know, he has laser-sharp wit, logic, and he's a genius, this man. He's, He's tremendous. So I have some sound clips of him, some sound bites of him, of his interviews uh, that we're going to listen to, we're going to share. Um, I'm going to give him credits. Uh, He has a Patreon account. He has his own YouTube channel. And he has a lot of books 
that he's written, or a few books that he's written, and which I'll put all in the show notes. But um, we're going to listen to a few of his uh, interview sound bites, and I'm going to throw some commentary mixed in there, you know, just to just to give you my point of view and you know what you know things that we need to look for. So um, you know, let's let's proceed forward, and you know, as I said, hopefully you're listening very carefully to this man because he really really has the potential to change lives. So let's let's get into it. Let me move on to another debate that's been very controversial for you. Um, and this is, you got in trouble for refusing to call trans men and women by their preferred personal pronouns. No, I that's ask. not actually true. I got in trouble because I said I would not follow the compelled speech dictates of the federal and provincial government. I actually never got in trouble for not calling anyone anything. Right. That, that didn't happen. You wouldn't follow the change of law, which was designed not to once it was law. discrimination. No, no. Why that, well, that's your... what they said it was designed to do. Okay, huh. you cited freedom of speech in that. Why should your right to freedom of speech trump a trans person's right not to be offended? Because in order to be able to think, you have to risk being offensive. I mean, look at the conversation we're having right now. You know, like you're certainly willing to risk offending me in the pursuit of truth. Why should you have the right to do that? It's been rather uncomfortable. Well, I'm, I'm very glad I put you on the spot. <laughs> well, I'm you very glad that I have no, but you get my, my point. You get my point. It's like you're, you're doing what you should do, which is digging a bit to see what the hell's going on. So and that you, is what you should do. But uh, you're exercising you see, your freedom of speech to certainly risk offending me. And that's fine. I think you, more power to you as far as I'm concerned. So you haven't sat there and... I'm just trying, I'm just trying to work that out. I mean... Ha, gotcha. You have got me. You have got me. I'm trying to work that time. through in my head. Yeah, yeah. It took a while. It took a while. It did, it did, yeah. It took a while. You have voluntary... You have voluntarily come into the studio and agreed to be questioned. Mm -hmm. A trans person in your class has come to your class and said they want to be called and That's she. never happened. And I would call them she. So you would. So you've kind of changed your tune on that. No. No, no. I said that right from the beginning. What I said at the beginning was that I was not going to cede the linguistic territory to radical leftists, regardless of whether or not it was put in law. That's what I said. And then the people who came after me said, oh, you must be transphobic and you'd mistreat a student in your class. It's like, I never mistreated a student in my class. I'm not transphobic. And that isn't what I said. Well, except you've also called trans campaigners authoritarian, haven't you? I mean, isn't that Well, only in the broader context of my claims that radical leftist ideologues are uh, authoritarian, yes, which but they are. You're saying someone who's trying to work out their gender identity, who may well have struggled with that, had quite a no tough time over the years. With it, yeah. You're comparing them with, you know, Chairman Mao, who no, just saw the, the deaths of millions of people. Well, just even activists. if the activists, you know, they're trans people too, they have a right to say these things. Yeah, but they don't and have a right to speak for their whole community. To compare them to Chairman Mao, or, you know, I could Pinochet, Augusto Pinochet. I mean, you know, this is grossly insensitive. No, I didn't it? compare them to Pinochet. Well, I did compare them to He Mao. was an authoritarian. He was a right-winger, though. I was comparing them to the left-wing totalitarians. Okay. And I do believe Mao, they are left-wing totalitarians. Under Mao, millions of people died. Right. I mean, there's no comparison between That's... Mao and a trans activist, is there? Why not? Because trans activists aren't killing millions of people? The philosophy that's guiding their utterances is the same philosophy. The consequences are... Not yet. 
You're saying that trans activists no. could lead to the deaths of millions of people. What no, I'm saying that the philosophy that drives their utterances is the same philosophy that already has driven us to the deaths of millions of people. Okay, tell us how that philosophy is in any way comparable. Sure, that's no problem. The first thing is, is that the philosophy presumes that group identity is paramount. That's the fundamental philosophy that drove the Soviet Union and Maoist China. And it's the fundamental philosophy of the left-wing activists. It's identity politics. It doesn't matter who you are as an individual. It matters who you are in terms of your group identity. You're just That's saying murderous... things, though, to provoke, aren't you? I mean, Not you a are bit. a provocateur. I never say You're like anything... the alt-right that you hate to be compared to. You um, want to stir things up. I'm only a provocateur insofar as when I say what I believe to be true, it's provocative. I don't provoke. Maybe for humor. You don't set out Now and then. I'm not interested in provoking. But what not about the, the thing about, you know, fighting and the lobster? Tell us about the lobster. <laughs> well, that's quite a segue. Well, the first chapter I have in my book is called Stand Up Straight With Your Shoulders Back. And it's an injunction to be combative. Um, not least to further your career, let's say. But also to adopt a stance of ready engagement with the world and to reflect that in your posture. And the reason that I write about lobsters is because there's this idea that hierarchical structures are a sociological construct of the Western patriarchy. And that is so untrue that it's almost unbelievable. And I use the lobster as an example because the lobster, we, we divulged from lobsters in evolutionary history about 350 million years ago, common ancestor. And lobsters exist in hierarchies, and they have a nervous system attuned to the hierarchy. And that nervous system runs on serotonin, just like our nervous systems do. And the nervous system of the lobster and of the human being is so similar that antidepressants work on lobsters. And it's part of my attempt to demonstrate that the idea of hierarchy has absolutely nothing to do with sociocultural construction, which it doesn't. Let me just get this straight. You're saying that we should organize our societies along the lines of the lobsters. I'm saying that it's inevitable that there will be continuity in the way that animals and human beings organize, organize their structures. It's, it's it absolutely inevitable. And there is one third of a billion years of evolutionary history behind that. Right? That's, that's so long that a third of a billion years ago, there weren't even trees. It's a long time. You have a mechanism in your brain that runs on serotonin that's similar to the lobster mechanism that tracks your status. And the higher your status, the better your emotions are regulated. So as your serotonin levels increase, you feel more positive emotion and less negative emotion. So you're saying, like the lobsters, we're hardwired as men and women to do certain things, to sort of run along tram lines, and there's nothing we can do about it. No, I'm not saying there's nothing we can do about it, because it's like a, in a chess game, right? There's lots of things that you can do, although you can't break the rules of the chess game and continue to play chess. And biological, your, your biological nature is somewhat like that, is it sets the rules of the game, but within those rules you have a lot of leeway. But the idea that, but one thing we can't do is say that hierarchical organization is a consequence of the capitalist patriarchy. It's like, that's patently absurd. It's wrong. It's not a matter of opinion. It's seriously wrong. Aren't you just whipping people up into a state of anger? And Not at all. Divisions between men and women, mm -hmm. you're stirring people up. You know, you have pe any critics of you online get absolutely lambasted by your followers. Mm -hmm. And by me, off, generally. Sorry, your critics get lambasted by you. 
I mean, if they're academics, not at all. If an academic is going to come okay. after me and tell me that I'm not qualified and that I'm not, I don't know what I'm talking about. So I you're not going to say to your followers now, quit the abuse, quit the anger. Well, we'd need some substantial examples of the abuse and the anger before I could detail that question. There's a lot of it out so, there. For, well, let, let's take a more general perspective on that. So I've had 25,000 letters since June, something like that from people who told me that I brought them back from the brink of destruction. And so I'm perfectly willing to put that up against the rather vague accusations that my followers are making the lives of people that I've targeted miserable. It's, what's in I, it for the women, though? Well, what sort of partner do you want? Do you want an overgrown child? Or do you want someone to contend with that's going to help you? And so you're saying rely on? women have some sort of duty to sort of help fix the crisis of masculinity? Well, it depends on what they want. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly, exactly how I laid it out. Like, uh, women want, deeply want, men who are competent and powerful. And, and I don't mean power in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in that they can exert tyrannical control over others. That's not power. That's just corruption. Power is competence. And why in the world would you not want a competent partner? Well, I, I know why, actually. You can't dominate a competent partner. So, so if you want women domination, want to dominate is that what you're saying? No, I'd say women who have had their relationships impaired with, impaired, their relationships with men, impaired, and who are afraid of such relationships will settle for a weak partner because they can dominate them. But it's a suboptimal solution. Do you think that's what a lot of women good. are doing? I think there's a substantial minority of women who do that. And I think it's very bad for them. They're very unhappy. It's very bad for their partners, although their partners get the advantage of not having to take any responsibility. But what gives you the right to say that? I mean, maybe that's how women want their relationships, those women. I mean, you're making these vast generalizations. I'm a clinical psychologist. Right, so you've, you're saying you've done your research and women are unhappy dominating men. I didn't say they were unhappy dominating men. I you... said it was a bad long-term solution. Okay, you said it was it's making the them miserable. Thing. Yes, it is. And it depends on the time frame. I mean, there can be, there's intense pleasure in momentary domination. That's why people do it all the time. But it's no formula for a long-term, successful long-term relationship. That's reciprocal, right? Any long-term relationship is reciprocal. possibly one of the most famous Canadians in the world right now. No, not Justin Bieber or Justin Trudeau. It's the academic Jordan Peterson. The past two years, the Canadian psychologist and academic has been adopted as a hero. Are you a radical right-winger? <laughs> it's a silly question. What's the evidence for that? I'm, I'm not asking for I'm I'm asking you. It's ridiculous to defend yourself against an accusation that has no grounds. So what uh, is your political perspective? I don't really have a political perspective. I'm not trying to play a political game. And I don't think that the problem that we're having right now is a political problem. I think it's deeper than that, which is what I said right from the beginning, which is why I think that what I'm doing is resonating. Stephen's teammate is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, a YouTube sensation, and the author of the big new international bestseller, 12 Rules for Life. Ladies and gentlemen, Toronto's Jordan Peterson.
So how did he become so well-known? He first came to national prominence in Canada in 2016 in a debate about new laws on gender identity. Bill C-16 made it an offence to refuse to call someone by their chosen gender pronoun. You say you've been uh, painted as, a, as a, an extreme right-winger. Well, some or, people have tried yeah. that. Not very successfully, but they've tried it. And you came to prominence um, in part over your opposition to this law that we just talked about yeah. in Canada, proposing the use of preferred pronouns for transgender people. Mm. Just for clarity. Mandating them. Yeah. Right. That Saying was that you issue. should do it. No, but, that you had to do it. Uh, right, you had to do it by right. law, but just... Hundreds of thousands subscribed to his online lectures. And his videos, where he talks everything from identity politics, which we've touched on, to the Bible, to Disney movies, have been viewed over 150 million times. And then, finally, there's also, and I don't know what you think about this with regards to evidence, but what constitutes evidence is not always that easy to determine, even in, in the scientific domain. So think about how we think about ourselves and other people and how we treat ourselves and other people. You could imagine that you're like a clock running down, and that's like a deterministic model, but people aren't clocks. We're dissipative structures. A clock is something that runs downhill. We're, 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 not, we're not clocks by any stretch of the imagination. And we take energy in and we disperse energy. And so what we see in front of us is a, an array of potential universes. And those are the universes that we could bring about as a consequence of our actions. And, it, and we make choices to the right or the left. There's a lot of mythological speculation about that sort of idea too, in, in an ethical sense, because we decide what sort of reality that we want to bring into being. And so we encounter potential like God did at the beginning of time when he made order out of chaos. Chaos is this chaotic potential. We confront chaotic potential with our consciousness and we cast that into reality. In a way, you're appealing to a certain political viewpoint. Well, that's, that's what the, people claim. That's your fans. Your fan base seems to come from that side. No, I don't agree with that at all. I think that, first of all, you know, whether or not what I have are fans is debatable. Rock stars have fans. I'm not a performance artist. I don't have fans. I have people who are listening carefully to what I'm saying. And it's very complicated what I'm saying. So they're not just fans. It isn't men precisely who I'm, who I'm speaking to, it's, it's people. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm actually interested in individuals and I'm interested in their fortification against tragedy. You know, every time I do an interview, the interview is always political. It's always political. Well, the, and clue, the clue is in the title of this program. We are the Daily <laughs> oh, Politics. Oh, no, no, fair enough. No, 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 fair enough, fair enough. And I'm, I'm not casting aspersions <laughs> at this program, but the fundamental news that's important about what I'm doing isn't the political element. If you treat yourself like you're a free moral agent with choice and that you can determine your, the course of your life, then you seem to get along better with yourself and to be less anxious and to be more productive. And if you treat other people like that, that they're free agents that are making voluntary choices about how reality is going to come into being, and you reward them when they do it properly and you punish them uh, or otherwise discipline them when they don't, when they do it badly, then your relationships with them seem to work. And then if we predicate our society on the presupposition that each individual human being is capable of doing just that, then we seem to have extremely functional societies. And so, and this is something that Sam Harris has been taken to task for many times, is if you dispense with the idea of free will, how is it you organize your relationship to yourself, your interactions with your family, and your relationships with the broader social community? It's a very complicated issue. So, I believe 
strongly that we have free will, that we're responsible for our choices. Those choices are constrained in many, many ways. So there's a chaos within that can manifest itself, that can disrupt whatever order you are. Um, and you know that in minor ways because everybody's always running around doing things that aren't good for them, that they know they shouldn't do and that they can't control. And so there's a chaotic and an orderly aspect to everything, to the individual, to the family, to the social world, to the natural world. It's chaos and order at every level of analysis simultaneously. Thank you for your support for more and better debate on the big issues of the day. It's great to have you as virtual participants in tonight's proceedings. Great start to the debate, Michelle. Thank you. I'm now going to ask Jordan Peterson to speak for the con team. So we should first decide what we're talking about. Um, we're not talking about my views of political correctness, despite what you might have inferred from the last uh, speaker's comments. This is how it looks to me. We essentially need something approximating a low-resolution grand narrative to unite us. And, and we need a narrative to unite us because otherwise we don't have peace. Um, what's playing out in the universities and in broader society right now is a debate between two fundamental low-resolution narratives, neither of which can be completely accurate because they can't encompass all the details. Obviously, human beings have an individual element and a collective element, a group element, let's say. Force for good or bad, PC? Well, I think at the moment it's clearly a force for bad. I think it's corrupted the universities, perhaps beyond repair. Um, and I think the reason for that fundamentally is that the, the PC ideologue types think that the proper way to classify people is by their group affiliation. And there's all sorts of problems with that. One is that there's an endless number of ways that you can classify people by their group affiliation. Jordan, let's have you jump in on this idea of, of what you see as the pernicious danger of groupthink when it comes to ethnicity, uh, when it comes to gender. Why do you think well, that that's one of the primal sins, in your view, of, of quote, political correctness? Well, I think it's one of the primal sins of identity politics players on the left and the right, just to be clear about that. Personally, since this has got personal at times, I'm no fan of the identitarian right. I think that anybody who plays a game, a, a conceptual game, where group identity comes first and foremost risks an exacerbation of tribalism. It doesn't matter whether it's on the left or the right. Um, with regards to the idea of group rights, the, the idea of group rights is extraordinarily problematic because the, 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 the obverse of the coin of individual rights is individual responsibilities. And you can hold an individual responsible, and an individual can be responsible. And so that's partly why individuals have rights. But groups, how do you hold a group responsible? But I, I hear a lot of category creep in, again, the argument against political correctness or against seeking group redress, the idea that kind of that way lies dehumanization or, you know, that you're kind of one minute you're asking. Let's have Stephen come in on this because okay. this is part of your opening remarks. You're, you're a category creep, Stephen. Okay. Respond to that. It's a nice, I'm, I'm still very lost about why we aren't talking about political correctness. We're talking about yes. politics and uh, uh, that's fine. Uh, and I share you know, I share exactly what you think about it. I'm not an enemy of identity politics per se. I, I can obviously see where it goes wrong and where it's annoying. Let's be empirical about this. How well is it working for you in America at the moment? Well, not well at all. Really isn't. Right. I, 
you can answer me in a moment. Um, the, reason, the reason that Trump and Brexit in Britain and all kinds of nativists all over Europe are succeeding is not the triumph of the right, it's the catastrophic failure of the left. It's our fault. We absolutely... My point is not that I've turned to the right or anything like that, or that I'm nice and fluffy and want everybody to be decent. Mm. I'm saying political correctness. Resist! Fight! If you have a point of view, fight it in the proper manner, using democracy as it should be. Not channels of education, not language. You know? It's so silly. But it, 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 there's a chess rule, you know? In chess, the best move to play in chess is not the best chess move, it's the move your opponent least wants you to play. You At the moment, the you're being recruiting sergeants for the right. But by annoying and upsetting, and instead of fighting, either fighting or persuading. I've been given huge grief already simply because I'm standing here next to Professor Peterson, which is the very reason that I am standing here in the first place. I'm standing next to someone with whom I have, you know, differences, shall we say, in terms of politics and all kinds of other things, um, precisely because I think all this has got to stop. This rage, resentment, hostility, hostility intolerance, above all this um, with us or against us, certainty. A grand canyon has opened up in our world. The fissure, the crack, grows wider every day. Neither on each side can hear a word that the other shrieks, and nor do they want to. I think one of the things I loved about Jordan's book, which I read, speed read last night, so forgive me, Jordan, I've not read every line, <laughs> but one of my favorite rules in Jordan's book is rule nine, which says, assume the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Chaos is something that you say is distinctly feminine, whereas well, order symbolized, is something it's, it's symbolized. symbolized by the feminine, yeah. Okay, so you posit that. So this almost seems like, in certain ways, an antidote to Femininity, is that not the case? It's an, it's an attempt, I think that, let me think here for a minute how to, how to put that properly. Under, under, under other political conditions, it could have been an antidote to order. Mm. But I think that the fundamental threats that our society faces now are th threats from the side of chaos, from the side of, side of destabilization, rather than, f in our culture at least, rather than from the side of tyranny. If you read Maps of Meaning, there's a section on neuropsychology that's also buttressed by a book written by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary that lays out the relationship between the right and left hemis hemisphere. Now, it's quite strange that we have a right and left hemisphere. It, it's almost as if we have two consciousnesses dwelling in our, in our, in our, in our being. Um, and they're quite separable. If you cut the corpus callosum that unites the two, then the two hemispheres will act independently to some degree. You can communicate with each of them somewhat independently. So they actually view the world quite differently. And that, that hemispheric distinction is not only there in human beings, but also in animals a long way down the phylogenetic chain. And so you're wired so that you're not just order and you're not just chaos. You're order continually confronting chaos so that the order remains updated. See, something is meaningful. The reason that something is meaningful is because you're getting a deep instinctual signal that you're encountering anomaly at a rate that doesn't exceed your capability. That's also the rate at which you can keep yourself updated optimally. And so meaning isn't epiphenomenal and it, and it isn't, 
It isn't some kind of delusion that rationality can and should overcome to say, well, everything's meaningless. It's like, no, it's not. Meaning is the most fundamental instinct for adaptation. And so that's partly why in 12 Rules for Life, I said one of the rules, um, I think it's rule seven, is do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Michael, give us uh, your rebuttal. Let me step out here in Peterson land. <laughs> ah, I feel freer already. <laughs> I don't know what mythological collective Mr. Peterson refers to. I'm part of the left. They're cantankerous. When they have a firing squad, it's usually in a semicircle. Part of the skepticism of rationality was predicated upon the Enlightenment project, which says we're no longer going to be subordinate to skepticism, to superstition. We're going to think and we're going to think well. I'm going to stand here at the podium. I'm a preacher. And I will ask for an offering at the end of my presentation. This is the swimsuit competition of the intellectual beauty pageant. So let me show you the curves of my thought. Oh my God, was that a politically incorrect statement I just made? How did we get to the point where the hijacking of the discourse on political correctness has become a kind of mannequin distinction between us and them? And I ain't seen nobody be a bigger snowflake than white men who complain. <laughs> mommy, mommy, they won't let us play and have everything we used to have under the old regime where we were right racists and supremacists and dominant and patriarchs and hated gays and lesbians and transsexuals that, yeah, you got to share. This ain't your world, this is everybody's world. And let me end by saying this. You remember that story from David Foster Wallace, fish are going down, two fish are going and an older fish comes in the opposite direction. He said, hello boys, how's the water? They swim on, they turn to each other, what the hell is water? Because when you're in it, you don't know it. When you're dominant, you don't know it. Nothing, Kaiser Sozi said, is more interesting that the devil did than to make people believe he didn't exist. That's what white supremacy is. The phenomena of meaning is a manifestation of the complex orienting reflex. You're the force that confronts chaos and transforms it into habitable order. And there's an idea that if you do that using truthful speech, it's probably the deepest idea in the Bible. If you confront chaos and the unknown using truthful speech, then the order that you produce is good. The left hemisphere is specialized for, um, for what's known, and the right hemisphere is specialized for anomaly. And V.S. Ramachandran, who's a famous neurologist, um, an MD, in, in California has also made a very similar claim based on his analysis of brain damaged individuals. But Goldberg's case was the left hemisphere is specialized for what you know how to do and the right hemisphere is specialized for response to what's unknown. And that maps onto this order chaos dimension that the right hemisphere is concerned with reaction to anomaly. And so, so what happens in some sense is something unexpected happens, that's the domain of chaos. And that stops you in your tracks. It freezes you. And that's a predator response, a prey response, actually. You're frozen. The unknown has manifested itself. You're not in order anymore. So you freeze, and then you cautiously start to explore. And then it's imagistic. You start making imaginal representations, metaphoric representations, dramatic representations of what might constitute the unknown. And then those representations are practiced and implemented in the world and they become more and more fine-grained and automatized and as that happens 
the locale that they're represented in in the brain shifts from right to left. So, so, so the reason I'm telling you all this is because, you know, this is where the metaphysical and the physical unite. And this is the sort of argument that I was trying to make to Sam Harris. And hopefully we'll be able to continue doing that because I'm going to meet him three times in the next few months. Is that the, the yin-yang idea, the chaos order idea, is metaphorical in some sense. To say that the world is made up of order and chaos doesn't sound like an empirical statement. But strangely enough, the world to which our brains are adapted is actually the world of chaos and order. You can think about it as unexplored and explored territory too. That's another, that's another you know, take on it. The two different modes of looking at the world are necessary for survival, right? So that's real. And so the idea that the world is made out of chaos and order is perhaps the most real idea. The fundamental low resolution um, grand narrative that we've oriented ourselves around in the West is one of the sovereignty of the individual. And it's predicated on the idea that all things considered, the best way for me to interact with someone else is individual to individual. And to react to that person as if they're both um, part of the process, because that's the right way of thinking about it, the psychological process by which things we don't understand can yet be explored and by things that aren't properly organized in our society can be yet set right. And the reason we're valuable as individuals, both with regards to our rights and responsibilities, is because that's our essential purpose and that's our nobility and that's our function. One of the lines in the New Testament that I've tripped over many times is, Christ is being anointed with a very costly vial of perfume and, and his disciples are taking the woman who does that to task for wasting money that could have been spent on the poor. It's a very complicated story, but Christ tells his disciples that the poor will be with us always. And that's something that I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand why that statement would be made. That and to those who have everything, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, everything will be taken, which is a discussion, which is a very, very succinct, observation about the continuing existence of inequality. So there's, there's evidence throughout the New Testament of observation of the inevitability of inequality. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a moral good. Men are having a lot of crises at the moment in terms of mental, mental health, suicide mm. issues, um, their own sense of identity, because I think some of the stereotypes put on men are quite limiting for them as well. I think they make men quite unhappy as well. The so devil's in the details with regards to equality, because I'm a, an advocate of equality of opportunity. But and I outcomes. Think the idea, outcomes, that's an appalling doctrine. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, because well, you have to produce an unbelievably potent bureaucracy to make the ever greater and ever finer distinctions that are necessary to enforce equality of outcome. How many group differences are you going to equalize across? Is it just gender and sex? How many genders? No, so gender and ethnicity? How many genders? I think How many what, ethnicities? What How many races? Last year, he supported ex-Google employee James Damore, who had been fired for suggesting men and women have different interests due to biological differences. You see, one of the things that's happened in the analysis of the differences between men and women is that the social constructionist claim is that mm. the differences are socially constructed, mm. right? Is that it's a consequence of environment that men and women differ. But what the scientific literature indicates is that as cultures become more egalitarian, like they have in Scandinavia, the differences between men and women actually increase rather than decreasing, which is a direct repost to the social constructionist view. So they just deny all that. Let's Your side spoke, so I'm going to go yeah. to Jordan, then to you, Let's Michelle. assume for a moment that I've benefited from my white privilege. Okay, so let's assume that. That's, that's fine. Assumption. That's yeah, well, assumption. that's what you would say. 
So, um, um, so let's say, mm. here, let's get precise mm. about this, okay? Was that indi very individual of you? <laughs> let's get precise about this, mm. okay? Let's get precise. To what degree is my present level of attainment or achievement a consequence of my white privilege? And I don't mean sort of. I mean, do you mean 5%? Do you mean 15%? Do you mean 25%? Do you mean 75%? And what do you propose I do about it? How about a tax? How about a tax that's like specialized for me so that I can account for my privilege? You so that I can right hearing now. about it. Now, let's get precise about one other thing, okay? We'll get precise about one other thing. Precise? Now, yeah, precise. precise yes. Mm. And so, if, if we can agree, and we haven't, that the left can go too far, which it clearly can, mm -hmm. then how would my worthy opponents precisely define when the left that they stand for has gone too far. You didn't like equity, equality of outcome, I think that's a great marker, but if you have a better suggestion and, and won't sidestep the question, so let's figure out how I can dispense with my white privilege and so that you can tell me when the left has gone too far, since they clearly can. And that's what this debate is about, about political correctness. It's about the left going too far. And I think it's gone too far in many ways, and I'd like to figure out exactly how and when so the reasonable left could make its ascendance again and we could quit all this nonsense. Jordan's point about how does he, in a sense, get an equal voice in this debate back if it is implied that his participation brings with it this baggage of white privilege that doesn't allow him to see clearly the issues that are before us. But that is to be complicit in the very problem itself, terminologically. You're beginning at a point that's, that's already uh, productive and controversial. You're saying, how can he get his equality back? Who are you talking about? Jordan Peterson, trending number one on Twitter? <laughs> Jordan Peterson, what an international, inter international bestseller? I want him to tweet something out about me and my book. <clears throat> Jordan Peterson, right? This is what I'm saying to you. Why the rage, bruh? You, you, you're doing well, but you're a mean, mad white man, and you're going to get us right. And I have never seen so much wine and snowflaking. So I don't think Jordan Peterson is suffering from anything except an exaggerated sense of entitlement and resentment, and his own privilege is invisible to him, and it's manifest with lethal intensity and ferocity right here on stage. <laughs> Jordan, I'm going to have to let you respond to that if you would. Well, what I derive from that series of rebuttals, let's say, is twofold. The first is that saying that the radical left goes too far when they engage in violence is not a sufficient response by any stretch of the imagination because there are sets of ideas in radical leftist thinking that led to the catastrophes of the 20th century and that was at the level of idea not at the level of violent action it's a very straightforward thing to say you're against violence it's like being against poverty it's like you know gen generically speaking decent people are against uh, poverty and violence it doesn't address the issue in the least and with regards to my privilege or lack thereof I mean, I'm not making the case that I haven't had advantages in my life and disadvantages in my life like most people. You don't know anything about my background or where I came from, and it doesn't matter to you because fundamentally I'm a mean white man. That's a hell of a thing to say in a debate. I'm going to point out two things again. The first is that 
my question about when the, when the left goes too far still hasn't been answered. And then the second thing I'm going to point out is that, you know, it's conceivable that I am a mean man. You know, I mean, maybe I'm meaner than some people and not as mean as others. I think that's probably more the case. But I would say the fact that race got dragged into that particular comment is a better exemplar of what the hell I think is wrong with the politically correct left than anything else that could have possibly happened. Explains your opposition to this idea of a law mandating you to use a no. preferred pronoun is because you don't actually believe that that's the truth, that a trans woman is a woman and therefore you can't use that pronoun. No, that's not my argument at really? all. Really? Yeah, really. My yeah, argument uh, is that the no, government I know what your shouldn't compel is. voluntary speech. No, but I know what your argument is. And no, but that's really it. But that's exactly it. There's the no motivation behind, behind it. There's no motivation it. behind it. But you don't believe I wouldn't put everything on my online in my life to take the stance I did unless I had thought that through very deeply. And I've thought it through very deeply. There aren't hidden motivations that have to do with some arbitrary prejudice against trans people. Okay. It's purely, pure and simply this. There's never been a time in English common law history where the government compelled speech and the Canadian government dared to do that. And that was unacceptable. And they masked it with this show of, of compassion for the oppressed and I don't buy it. It's interesting to hear that there really doesn't seem to be a problem, but yet I think we all instinctively know that there is some kind of problem. There isn't censorship, of course not, in, in the way that there is in Russia. I, but that's not why I came to this debate. I was interested in um, what I've always been interested in, the suppression of language and thought, the closing down, the rationalist idea that seems beguiling, that if you uh, uh, limit people's language, it may somehow teach them uh, a different way of thinking. Uh, something that would have delighted the inventors of George Orwell's Newspeak, for example. Um, and it, it seems to me it's just implausible. It doesn't, it doesn't work. This feeling of being silenced, which I understand, although it seems very vague, right? You kind of are not quite putting your finger on who is silencing you, except for a vague fear that if you say something untoward, you're going to be the subject of, I'm not shaming. sure. Yes. Uh, sh shaming, but by who? Yeah. But by, by what? By I'm the internet? The names. <laughs> no, but I mean... Point. I'm scared. I you're, but if you're I scared. listed... <laughs> but that's again, the point. You're scared. We, it is a culture of right. fear. I understand there's that element yeah. of fear. What I'm saying is that it's, it's a feeling. It's a feeling that is this sort of intangible result of on, I oh, think, on. primarily. We've all, we've all seen the sort of show trial thing where the person then apologizes. I have so much to learn about sexual politics. I am really sorry. Uh, signed a lawyer, crossed out the name of the person. <laughs> it's, it's, you think the real mistake of our left is that we underestimate the right. The right isn't as stupid as we'd like them to be. If only they were. Oh, if only they weren't so cunning, so sly, so smart, so aware of our shortcomings. And, and, and I just fear that political correctness is a weapon that they value. That the more, the more we tell the world how people should be treated, how language should be treated, what words are acceptable, what attitudes are acceptable, what HR meeting is going to tell you in a long bullet-pointed list about how you look at people. All of this is, 
is meat and drink to bad people, to malefactors, to bad actors. I'm not counting myself as one of those bad actors in that sense. I mean bad actors in the other sense. Right, so, so I... So <laughs> I think I'd j just really say that the, the ghost hovering over me is it's a letter Oscar Wilde wrote, and uh, he, he said to Bozzi's love, he said, the fact that you didn't get a degree is, is nothing, but you never acquired um, what is sometimes called the Oxford manner, and I'll say for that the university manner. Um, he said, Oscar said, I take that to mean the ability to play gracefully with ideas. I think that's disappearing from our culture, and I think it's a terrible thing. <laughs> But I don't think we should underestimate how much this feeling is prevalent in the culture of <laughs> this strange paradox that the liberals are illiberal in their demand for liberality. They are exclusive in their demand for inclusivity. They are homogenous in their demand for heterogeneity. They are somehow undiverse in their call for diversity. You can be diverse, but not diverse in your opinions and in your language and in your behavior. And that's a terrible pity. The people don't think through what freedom of speech means because they tend to think it means the right to criticize those who are in power, for example, which is one of the things it means. But freedom of speech actually means the freedom to formulate ideas badly and awkwardly in public while you're trying to think them through. Including offending people? Well, it's inevitable that you're going to offend people if you're going to talk about anything difficult, because if you talk about something difficult, then people are going to become emotionally involved. And that's especially true if you talk to large numbers of people about something difficult. Like if I address an audience of a thousand people about anything vaguely contentious, which is obviously yep. something that needs to yeah. be thought about, then a small percentage of them are going to be offended. And so what that means is that as your audience scales, or as the importance of the topic increases, your ability to say anything decreases. That's not I, I, I mean, And that's part of this pernicious politically correct doctrine that I've been speaking about. When a hierarchy becomes corrupt, then the only way to ascend it is to exercise power. That's essentially the definition of a tyranny. But that doesn't mean that the imperfect hierarchies that we have constructed in our relatively free countries, which at least tilt somewhat towards competence and ability, as evidenced by the staggering achievements of civilization that we've managed to produce, it doesn't mean that the appropriate way of diagnosing them is to assume without reservation unidimensionally that they're all about power and as a consequence everyone who occupies any position within them is a tyrant or a tyrant in the making. And that is certainly the fundamental claim of someone like Foucault. And it's part and parcel of this what would you call it, this ideological catastrophe that's political correctness. I'm not here to argue against progress. I'm not here to argue against equality of opportunity. Anyone with any sense understands that even if you're selfish, you're best served by allowing yourself access to the multiplicitous talents of everyone and to discriminate against them for arbitrary reasons unrelated to their competences, it's abhorrent. That has nothing to do with the issue at hand. There's no way I'm going to agree that political correctness is the way to address any of that, and there's plenty of evidence to the contrary, some of which I would say was displayed quite clearly tonight.
Look, when you look at the world, you look at the world with a set of presuppositions. I outlined that in chapter 10 in, in, rules, in 12 Rules for Life called Be Precise in Your Speech. It, it indicates that when you look at the world, you look at it through a value structure. You can't help that because you're always aiming at something in the world and you're always aiming at something you want and you're trying to get it. And so that means that you look at the world through a value structure. Now the question is whether or not that value structure is valid. And that's a very complicated question. Okay, so how do you know if it's valid? Number one, you lay it out and you act it out. You, you implement it perceptually and then you act it out. And if you get what you wanted, what the theory predicted, that's another way of thinking about it, but wanted is a better way of thinking about it, then the fact that that behavioral routine and perceptual structure produced the intended result validates it as a tool for obtaining that result. And that's a form of truth. Now, it might be the only form of truth, although I'm not convinced of that completely, but it might be. It's a very complicated question. And so if you immerse yourself in meaning, you can learn to do that. You can learn to do that. You can make that goal your highest goal. And so then the highest goal would be to be the sort of mythological hero, let's say, to embody and incarnate and imitate the mythological hero, like the imitation of Christ, which is what you're called to do if you happen to be Christian. That means that you live in meaning, and that meaning is the antidote to the suffering of life that would otherwise make you brutal and vengeful and unhappy and miserable and like that, that young guy who just mowed down 12 people in Toronto. These are real things. You lose your sense of meaning. You end up in hell. And in hell, you do all sorts of terrible things. These are, these are dreadful realities. And it isn't as if they're not grounded in the appropriate science. So again, we're going to go right now to Stephen Fry and Jordan Peterson, get their thoughts on how the evening played out. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you both. We're just going to do a quick uh, discussion with the online audience who's watching right now, just to get uh, your reactions to the debate. And maybe to start with you, uh, Jordan, there were some heated moments here. Did that... Did that surprise you, that uh, the exchanges that you had with uh, Michael Eric Dyson? Well, I wouldn't say it surprised me. Well, I suppose it probably did. It just seemed, didn't seem like a very good tactical move, you know, and, and I stand by what I said. I don't see any reason at all that my racial identity needed to be dragged into the discussion independent of my personality proclivity. So what I'm saying to you is that I would invite you in terms of the surrender of your privilege to give you a specific, a specific response, come with me to a black Baptist church. Come with me to a historically black college. Come to me to an, to an indigenous or first nations community where we're able to engage in some of the it, lovely conversation, but also to listen and hear. And when I added race to that, I was talking about the historically evinced inability to acknowledge others' pains equally to the one that they are presently enduring. So as a human being, as a human being, I love you as my brother, but I stand by my comment. Well, I've seen the sorts of things that you're talking about. I happen to be an honorary member of an indigenous family, so mm. don't tell me about what I should go see with regards to oppression. You, you don't know anything about me. You asked me a question, I gave you a response. Yeah. You gave me a generic response, it's a generic, generic race-based response. You. Jordan Peterson, I would like for you to come with me, Michael Eric Dyson, to a black Baptist church. You've been to I, one of those? I would, I would be happy to do that, by the Okay, all right, I'm going to hook you up. I'm going to hook you up. I would say what I just said to Mr. Fry here is that it was a pleasure sharing the stage with him. I've rarely heard anyone ever deliver their convictions with such a remarkable sense of 
passion and wit and forbearance and erudition. It was, it was really something. I believe one of the greatest human failings is to prefer to be right than to be effective. Um, and, and political correctness is always obsessed with how right it is without thinking of how effective it, it might be. But I'm not sure, and I would like this quotation from my hero Bertrand Russell to hover over the evening. One of the painful things about our time is that those who feel certainty are stupid, and those with any imagination and understanding are filled with doubt and indecision. Let doubt prevail. And, and I realize that that's not a political point of view, it is a personal one. Right. Um, and the, the gap between the personal and the political, which is a space you obviously are very interested in as a psych psychologist, um, is one that is rarely explored. Um, mm -hmm. uh, pe pe people are either just so personal that it has no application in the outside world and the organization of human yeah. affairs, or they're so political and so much to do with structure and yeah. distinction between hierarchies and networks and so on, that they forget the individual and that's the space in which the impassioned liberal lives and it's uh, not easy mm -hmm. to do it because you often do sound rather wet and yes. I'm aware that I no, did no, but no. I enjoyed it. What should I say in closing? Get your act together much as you can. There's things to do in the world and it would be good if everyone was out there doing them. Let's see how we, we could beat this old globe back into some reasonable shape or into better shape than it's ever been. That would be a lovely thing to do. So, goodbye for now. So, Dr. Peterson, you mentioned these ideas of responsibility, of virtue, of respect. You've, I think, detailed what you think students shouldn't do in these examples of like protests and these examples of certain types of activist tactics. What advice would you have for students? How can students make the changes that they want to make? Particularly, do you have any advice for students here? Yeah, read great books. Mm -hmm. Really, man. You've got this four-year period that, that has been carved out of your lives by society. They, they, it's, it's given you an identity, like a high-quality identity, and freedom at the same time. And you're not going to get that again in your life. You've got, a, you've got a respectable identity, university student and complete freedom associated with that, or as near as you're ever going to get. And you've got these unbelievable libraries that are full of the writings of people mm -hmm. who, are, who are intelligent and articulate beyond comprehension. And you, know, and, and you can go there and you can learn all this. And you might think, well, why should you learn it? Um, well, you, you learn it to get a job, or you learn it to pe get good grades, or you learn it to get a degree. And that's all nonsense. It's nonsense. The reason that you come to university to be educated is because there is nothing more powerful than someone who is articulate and who can think and speak. It's power. And I mean power of the best sort. It's authority and influence and respectability and competence. And so you come to university to craft your highest skill. And your highest skill is to be found in articulated speech. And if you're, if you're, if you're a master at formulating your arguments, you win everything. And better than that, when you win everything, everyone around you wins too. Because to transform yourself into, let's consider, consider your transformation into something approximating the logos. It means you shine a light on the whole world. Well, there's nothing more exciting to do than that. There's nothing better you can possibly do. And to think that you're coming to university to be, you know, trained to have a job, it's like, great, that's a hell of a lot better than being unemployed and covered with Cheeto dust while you're <laughs> snacking away in front of your video game in the basement. But it's not, it's not a, 
and I don't have anything against video games, by the way. But, it, <laughs> but it's hardly a triumphant call to, to being in the world, and that's what universities should be calling forth. It's like, God, you people, you, you know, I, I know what Harvard students are like. I taught here for five years. You people are spectacular. You're spectacular. You're, 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 you're all capable of being world beaters. You transform yourself into something that's articulated and sensible and grounded in history and knowledgeable and wise, man. You can do anything you want and hopefully anything you want for good. Because if you have any sense, everything you want to do would be for the good. Because there's nothing more compelling or meaningful or, or useful in combating the tragedy of life than to, than to struggle with all your soul on behalf of the good. And the universities have forgotten that. It's why everyone's bailing out of the humanities. And they should. The humanities are corrupt. And they're corrupt because they're not telling students this. It's so bloody obvious. It's like, learn to think. Learn to speak. Learn to read. It makes you a superpower. An individual superpower. You have, it, it, and I don't understand why that isn't just told to students. It's not that hard to understand, and everyone wants to hear it. It's like, really? I could do that? I could do that? It's like, yeah, really, you could do that. And the whole society around you has labored for, really, thousands of years to provide every single one of you with this spectacular opportunity that you have while you're undergraduates and graduate students here. Man, they're just, everyone's just praying that you would come here and manifest everything that you could manifest. And that's what you should be doing, instead of waving placards and complaining about how you're oppressed, for God's sake. You see these Yale students complaining about their oppression. It's just, it just leaves me aghast. It's like, well, we're... Hope you enjoyed uh, the sound bites of Jordan Peterson, his thought process, his logic, and his genius. Um... He does have a Patreon that you could support him on. Um, I'm going to leave that in the show notes. And he has a few books and he does have a lecture circuit. So, you know, support the man because he really is, really is beneficial to a lot of people in changing lives today. Uh, really, really tremendous uh, thinker, philosopher, speaker, and uh, human being. Well, to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. Uh, any comments, show topics, feedback you'd like to give me would be appreciated. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and namaste.